Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah. This is Cog Dog Radio. Last time we wrapped up talking about Prime, a border collie that I worked with, and his story is a very interesting one. So if you haven't heard it, I really encourage you to go back. It is in four parts, and he's one of my favorite cases. So to start off today, I'm just going to cover up, uh, sorry, I'm going to clear up some confusion that I've received about one of the recommendations that I made for Prime. Um, I Prime had a specific issue where he would run after and kind of muzzle punch and cheap shot his housemates, his dog housemates, as they ran up the stairs to go outside. And Heidi and I formulated together um, an idea that we would just tell Prime to go get a toy when this was happening instead. And so when the dogs were coming upstairs, we'd tell Prime to go get a toy. He would do so. And then as they ran upstairs and ran outside, he would shake and bite at the toy. And then he was no longer uh, rushing those dogs and biting at those dogs. This worked out really nicely for him. And the reason that I liked it was because it allowed him to get rid of that same type of energy on the toy. Um, It fulfilled the need that the initial behavior was trying to uh, fulfill for him. Whenever I'm working on a replacement behavior, I like to do it like that. I like to say, what is this behavior achieving for the dog? And can we replace it with a behavior that achieves the same thing? Um, And so that's why that was a good idea in that scenario. As a result of me saying that I recommended that on the air, a whole lot of people translated that to thinking that I felt like shaking and biting a toy was an appropriate alternative behavior for a lot of different scenarios. Um, And that's not really true. So... I have mentioned dogs that self-soothe their arousal ringside by uh, shaking and biting a toy. And I had mentioned, I have mentioned that I'm not a huge fan of that. And the reason I'm not a fan of it, you guys, is because I see those dogs as needing help as much as the dog that's sitting ringside barking maniacally. Okay, so uh, Prime also isn't in a healthy arousal state when his housemates run up out, run up the stairs and outside. But this happens a few times a day, every day, and he's able to recover from it quickly, and he's not expected to work right after. And having him go get a toy instead of go after them was, um, is a perfect solution. Now, a dog biting and shaking a toy ringside is saying, I'm not comfortable with being ringside. And so what I want is to say, A, let's not have the dog be ringside. And then B, the times that the dog needs to be ringside, what can we do to help him feel calmer? Because he's got to be in an optimal arousal state walking into this ring and able to work. And that's not being achieved if the dog is needing to beat himself with a toy um, next to the agility ring. So I hope that that helps clear up some of the confusion. Um, I know that a lot of people have their 
a lot of people recommend that you have your agility dog just shake and bite a toy ringside, especially if they want to be barking. And I think that because you guys have heard that recommendation from lots of sources, that's kind of where you went, oh, oh, I know what this looks like. This is, this is what I've been told to do as well. Um, and I just want to clarify that that's not actually what I recommend for a dog ringside, especially, you know, our agility dogs who are coming to me for help, who are struggling with that environment. It's not a good idea for them to be expected to, um, stand there and take out their frustration and their arousal on a toy. I would rather them not be required to be in that scenario. So hopefully that clears it up. If you guys still have questions about that, um, shoot me an email at cogdogradio at gmail.com. So I'm going to introduce the new topic here. So we finished up Prime. It's time for us to talk about a new case, right? Wrong. (laughs) We are going to go back to the case study format, but I got so many questions about one specific topic that I decided to do a three-part series on that topic. And the topic is puppies, puppy testing, puppy selection, a lot of emails in my inbox, especially following Prime. Um, Some of them mentioned Jade as well, asking, what can I do differently when I look at a litter? to make sure that I don't have to deal with behavior problems like this. Now, I'm not reading an email verbatim. That's the gist of a lot of the emails that I'm getting. People want to, people hear these stories. They hear how hard my clients have had to work and they go, man, I don't want that to happen to me. (laughs) How can I prevent this from happening to me? And so they want to know, you know, what are my thoughts on puppy testing? What are my thoughts on, you know, just observation of puppy behaviors. What can we do when we're picking a puppy to set ourselves up for the best success? And so today I'm just going to talk a little bit about um, what I think about puppy testing and puppy selection. And then and I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, what I think is important versus what's not. If you have questions about, I'm not going to stand here and cite a bunch of sources, um, but If you have questions about where I got something or where I got an idea, shoot me an email because I don't just pull this stuff out of the sky. And if I'm pulling it out of the sky, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I'll tell you this is my opinion. Um, And so going forward, kind of keep that in mind. That's what I'm going to talk about today. Next time in two weeks, I'm going to talk about the three border collies that I have raised from puppyhood. I'm going to talk about Kelso, Iggy, and Felix, and I'm going to just tell you how I picked them and how their lives have gone. So just to give you kind of three examples of what I'm talking about here. And then the final episode, I have a very special interview lined up, a really special guest that I'm very excited about. So hang tight. We've got a really good three episodes talking about puppies. All right, so to get started, um, here's what I want you to remember, and I think everybody knows this, but everybody needs a reminder sometimes. None of us has a crystal ball, and we in dog sports like to think that we do. So we like to say, if I pick the best breeder 
And then I pick the best puppy. And maybe the breeder picks the puppy for me because they know better. Or maybe I even pay somebody else to pick the puppy for me because I think they know better. You know, if I just do all of these things right, I'm going to have the perfect dog and I'm going to have success. And I don't think anybody is saying those words out loud, you guys. But the way that people act tells me that we, we're we really putting a lot of weight on what puppy we choose. And as we should, it's important. It really is. But I just want to come back to earth and say, let's all remember that none of us has a crystal ball. None of us knows what's going to happen. And so all we can do is make the most informed choice that we can at the time. And each of my clients that we've talked to so far in this podcast did that with their puppies. They made the best choice that they knew how to make at the time. And each of them was highly informed about that choice. None of these people were shooting in the dark, okay? So if we're talking about, I'm going to say Jade, Kevin, and Prime, all three of them came from what are considered to be top breeders of these dogs, okay? These are considered to be very high-level breeders. Um, and if you were going to pick a performance dog of one of these breeds, somebody would tell you to go to one of these breeders, the three breeders. I'm not going to mention who they are, you guys, because I, I don't think that's fair. I haven't contacted them about the podcast. Um, and what I want you to know is that while these dogs that we're talking about may or may not be reflective of their breeding program, that kind of doesn't matter, right? What matters is that my clients selected their puppy uh, made informed decisions about their puppies. Okay, so I guess what I would like to say is that if your interest here is preventing these things from happening to you, then it's probably time for you to think really outside the box, um, which I know should should come as a surprise to no one if you've been listening to my podcast that that's generally what I encourage. <laughs> um, but these people made what are what are considered to be the most informed kind of decisions that you can make today okay so what i want is for you to think outside the box more than what's generally recommended and what's generally considered to be true so here are my general thoughts um oh and each of these puppies you guys was a was a top performance pick okay each of these puppies was considered by their breeder to be a really good choice. And I'm not going to argue that these dogs weren't good choices because I, knowing all three of them, think each of them is worth their weight in gold. They have brought things to their owner's lives that they did not expect. And I think they're really important dogs. I don't think any one of these dogs was a mistake. And I feel really fortunate to have come into contact with each of them. And the other thing is none of my clients that we've talked to so far feel like these dogs are a burden. Um, they each fully admit that they're more work than they thought they signed up for and that they are different from what they thought they were signing up for. But you'd pretty much have to pry any one of these dogs out of the cold dead hands of these owners. They are not going anywhere. <laughs> so that's important. 
we're going to talk about that level of commitment in a minute here. But I think what's a good idea and what a lot of my clients do that gets them into trouble, um, which is which is the opposite of this idea, is that they select the breed, they, they select the, um, they're, they're thinking about selecting the puppy itself and not so much the pairing that the puppy's coming from. So that's one thing to think about. I want you, I think the best thing is if you actually know both of the parents of your puppy. I know that doesn't happen that often, but if you're actually picking a puppy, do yourself a favor and try to know both the parents as, as well as you can. Um, and then a kind of a good second second best here would be to have to know people who know them. And I would love it if the breeder knew them both. Not a huge fan of, you know, shipping semen across the world and um, having breeders not actually know personally the dogs that they're using in their program. So what I would encourage you to do is look at the pairing, look at the parents of the puppies. And then this is important and this isn't always possible, but something that I have heard from a lot of longtime dog people. So this is not something that is researched to my knowledge, but I have heard it from too many dog people who've been in dogs, who've been breeding dogs a very long time for me to ignore it, that the grandparents are really important. That temperament in particular really frequently reflects the grandparents. So if you can know the grandparents, know the grandparents. It's a good idea. Um, Again, I know this isn't always possible, but it is if you look deep enough. And if it is important enough to you, you will find the situation in which you can be aware of the dog's lineage back that far. Um, Try to know the lineage as far back as you can, obviously. And I'm not going to talk about health um, because that's this isn't a podcast about health. It's a podcast about behavioral wellness. So as far as your genetic disorders and all of that stuff, I think there's a lot of information out there on that. There's a lot of people that can tell you a lot better than I can about that stuff. So, um, and it's so breed specific, you guys, that I'm not sure that I can even start to comment on it because I'm trying to talk about all breeds here. So knowing the parents, knowing the grandparents, really good idea. Knowing the breeder, not so much as this being a business transaction, um, but in so much as you you trust this person is a really good idea as well. That's, that's something that, again, that's my opinion, um, that being able to trust the person you're buying the dog from is, I think, important. Um, and then as far as puppy testing, you guys, the only research that I'm aware of on puppy testing has actually demonstrated it to mean zilch, to mean nothing. <laughs> so and to have no predictive qualities. Um, that's the only quantitative data that we have on puppy tests. And I'm talking about um, state like tests that have been devised by people that have, you know, the puppies go through a test and somebody gives them a ranking and it's very, um, it's very well, you know, designed to try to, to try to rule out bias. And, um, the only research that I'm aware of 
states that it doesn't actually matter. So <laughs> whether you go with a litter that's been tested or whether you have a lot of weight in the puppy test um, is totally up to you. If you've got a breeder that has anecdotally seen the testing to ring true, then I would trust them and I would then I would care about the test. If you have a breeder that doesn't do the testing because they've had the opposite experience, I would trust that too. Okay, so I wouldn't necessarily try to go with any specific test or try to not go with any specific test. Again, knowing and trusting your breeder is a good idea. And then, so that was kind of one of the, the big batches of emails was about puppy testing. And was I aware of any of the, like the Volhard test and was I aware of these things? Um, and did I think they had any weight and were these puppies tested? And um, my answer is the only research that we have states that it doesn't matter. And there's certainly anecdotal data that states the opposite. And so I wouldn't put, I personally wouldn't put a lot of weight on, on the results of a puppy test. Um, what I would put weight on is the opinions of the person who has raised this litter. And I want a litter, just me personally, I want a litter raised in a home, hands-on, so the breeder really, really knows this litter, really knows them well. I would, I would value their opinion more than I would value test results. That's, that's my opinion. Um, and then the other question is about puppy selection and is there anything that we can do when we're actually looking at a litter in front of us to try to help ourselves out? And we're going to get to this in the interview portion. So, um, the third podcast in this series, we're going to go into this a little more, but as far as what you can do with puppy selection the biggest thing for that I would want you to know is about developmental fear periods. Um, and I'm going to talk about this next time with Felix because he was literally on day one of his eight week fear period, like clockwork, um, when I showed up to get him. And had I not been aware of fear periods in general, I would have been put off by how just kind of fearful and unfriendly he was when I got there. Um, and I, again, I'll talk about that more next time, but as far as puppy selection, if you go when the puppies are during a normal developmental fear period, you're going to get a different read on this litter than you would if you went, um, during a different time. And so again, the opinion and feedback from the breeder who has been with them during their entire developmental um, growth thus far, I think is more important than your snapshot of them that day. And truthfully, with puppy selection, I would like to see a couple of things. I would like I might drop my keys on the floor because I would like to see dogs that don't scatter in fear when when something noisy happens. Um, but again, keeping in mind fear periods and I would, I would like to see puppies that are bold and playful. Um, other than that, 
I think going with your gut is probably as smart as anything else. Um, the only thing that I might caution anybody against would be going on looks alone. I would never pick a puppy based on a picture, based on a photograph. And again, I know great dogs that have been picked that way. So, so none of this is science. None of this is um, hard, fast rules, you guys. So, and that's why I wanted to talk about this. I'm getting a ton of emails. How, how can I do this differently? What can I do better um, so that I don't wind up in this situation? And the bad news, you guys, is that my clients who we've talked to so far have been pretty well informed about how to get a puppy and how to pick a puppy. This is what can happen if you do everything, quote unquote, right. And so for me, what I really would like to say is that the most important thing for you to do is to be really clear about your expectations and to be really clear about the promise that you're going to make this dog. To me, I get a puppy, I make a promise, and that promise is I will take care of you. I will take care of you until you die. And if that meant for some reason that the puppy was going to go live somewhere else, um, I've not done that, but I pass no judgment on people who carefully pick a home for their dog to go live at because their home is not the right one for them. I have no problem with that. But again, that does involve taking care of them until they die because you made sure that they went and lived somewhere that was better than the home that you could offer, right? So for me, the promise I make is I will take care of you until you die. And that might mean that you need behavior modification and medication. And it might mean that you're never going to compete in the sport that I wanted you to compete in. And it might, I mean, it could mean all kinds of things. Um... It could also mean that we go on to have a really fantastic career together and have a really good time. And, you know, that's what it could mean. It could also mean that, you know, you go live somewhere else that I know is better for you. But I think that, but I'm clear about that. I'm clear about those promises. And when you're looking at getting a dog, here's what I want you to think about. Say, this is the breed that I'm getting. These are, the, these are the catastrophes that could occur. And how am I going to handle each one? Okay, so um, if you get a golden retriever for performance and the dog turns out to have bilateral hip dysplasia and is never going to do agility, what's your choice? Does the dog live out its life with you? Does the dog go live somewhere else? Does the dog go back to the breeder? What happens there? Um, if you get a border collie, and it has behavior problems severe enough that it can't go to trials. And I'm going to tell you, I know people think I'm exaggerating here. The breed is wrought with behavior problems. I don't know a single one of them that doesn't have something quirky going on. Um, and sometimes that means that they can't function in these big high stress environments that we want them to function in. And if that's what that means, you know, how do you handle it? How do you deal with it? And I think that we all need to make those decisions up front. Um, and it would it's smart to specifically think about the issues that your breed may or may not have. So I know, you know, in Border Collies, epilepsy is a problem. I Going into a puppy, 
I do my best to try to make sure that I'm not putting myself at major risk of my dog having epilepsy. However, I don't kid myself and I know that anything can happen. And I know that epilepsy exists in this breed in all lines and if people, if anybody tells you that there's no epilepsy in their line, they either don't know the truth or they're lying. And so for me to say, you know, going into a border collie puppy, I've got to say, what happens if, you know, what do I deal with if? And I have friends who have bought performance puppies who have said, you know, if this puppy has, um, if this puppy needs orthopedic surgery at some point, I can't, you know, based on genetic issues, not, not an injury, but based on genetic issues, the puppy has to go back because I can't, I can't do that. I can't put in all that money and then also not have a performance dog. And I respect that just as much as I respect the person who says, no matter what, I will get the dog to surgery, the dog will live out its life in my backyard playing ball and doesn't have to do agility. I respect both of those choices because they're choices. The problem is you go in with rose-colored glasses and you say nothing bad is ever going to happen here. I, you will you will be proven wrong. <laughs> and um, I think it was much better to just go in with a really realistic attitude. Know what promise you're making the puppy because you're making a promise. Whether you want to say one out loud or not, you get a puppy, you're making a promise. And so know what that promise is. I would even go so far as to write it down, to speak it out loud. Um, I know that I told Felix's breeder exactly what my promise to him was when I got him. And we'll talk about that a little bit more next time when I talk about his story. But um, know that you have to know what you can deal with and what your limits are. I know that a lot of you guys listening to these podcasts, listening to these severe behavior problems that we worked through, were saying, wow, I'm not sure I would deal with that. (laughs) I'm not sure that I would. And I think that's a healthy conversation to have with yourself. It really is. I am not going to stand here and say that everybody has to be or should be um, Heidi, who has gone to the ends of the earth and back for Prime and would do it again. Not everybody can be her. And that has to be okay. You just need to be real about it before you get the dog. Um, and know what your limits are. I have a good friend who um, has had several border collies. She has one. He's still with her. Um, we joke that he'll live to probably be 25. <laughs> but he um, he's still with her and he has a lot of behavior problems. Um, severe kind of dog-directed reactivity issues are at the top of the list there. He's on three medications to function. He cannot do agility, um, and he was purchased for for that reason. I mean, he was. She got him from a performance breeder, wanting a fast, drivey agility dog. She had had another border collie that she was running agility with. She wanted another one, um, and not only did he have to have orth- some orthopedic surgery, but he's had to have severe. He's had to have extensive behavior modification. He has to be on um, a pretty serious drug cocktail and she still runs her life around him. Every time uh, she and her husband add a new dog to their household, it's got to be a big production, um, 
because of him. And her life has totally changed because of that dog. And she's a very wise woman. And she says she will tell you to, to your face if she got another puppy and it started to act with severe behavior problems the way that this dog did when he was very young, very young puppy, she would give him back. She says, I would not do this again. She's very clear about it. She says, I did it. I did it. The dog has a home with me. The dog is cared for through me for the rest of his life, but she's not doing it again. And I have all the respect in the world for that. And if Heidi said the same thing, I would have all the respect in the world for that. Um, Heidi doesn't. <laughs> Heidi says, please, God, don't let this happen to me again. But if it does, I guess we're doing this again. <laughs> um, and, but I respect both choices because both people have thought about it. And I think that that's what's the most important thing is to know that you can do the best that you can in picking a puppy. And we're going to talk about specifically how to do that in the next couple episodes but you got to recognize that you do not have a crystal ball and you cannot know. And so knowing what your limits are going in is best for everybody. So to recap you guys, next time I'm going to talk about my three border collies that I've raised from puppyhood. I'm going to talk about how I selected them and some of the problems I've had with them. Um, and what I've learned. And then in the final puppy episode, we have a really special guest. So I hope that you will tune in for the next couple. To close today, I got a really interesting email that I think warrants a little bit of discussion, which is that uh, this person had noticed a common thread, particularly in um, with Emily and Jade, as well as Prime and Heidi, that they had both talked about, you know, how hard it was to almost, like, come out of the closet as far as having behavior problems with their dogs. And, um, and how, how few times people are willing to be open and honest about their dog's behavior problems. And I've actually received a lot of feedback since starting the podcast about the interview portion, the interview episode. And how people are really, really interested in just how great it is that these people have showed up to have this conversation with me on air and to talk about the problems that their dogs have. Because this isn't something that people do. And ownership of our dog's problems isn't something that is seen in the sport world um, and isn't isn't even something that's really encouraged. Because if you stand up and say, my dog has XYZ issues, so often you're just blacklisted then, right? And I know what it's like to be a pariah at agility trials because my dog has an aggression problem, okay? I totally get that. Um, I also get where the other people were coming from because they didn't want my dog there and they had every right to not want him there. And so what I think I'd like to just encourage everybody to do, if your dog has behavior issues and they all do, right? <laughs> this could just be that your dog can't stay on the start line and that that makes you insane. Talk about it. I want you to talk about it. 
we have to be better about talking about our dog's behavior issues. And when I shot an email back to this person, one of the things I said is, you know, of course we have a hard time with this because in our culture, we don't talk about our own mental health. Why would we be talking about the mental health of our dogs? But what we know is that talking about it helps it get better. So talking about our behavior problems that we have with our dogs helps us to help them get better. Brushing it under the rug and pretending like you don't have a problem and continuing to go to agility trials and maybe put other people at risk or um, put your dog at risk does not help anything get better. So brushing things under the rug does not help anything get better. And I would just love it if people started to have more, more open dialogue about their own dog's problems as opposed to the open dialogue that I feel is not asked for and happens all the time is, and not dialogue, but just advice, is, you know, everybody wants to tell you what they think about your dog. And then in the meantime, they're not talking about their own dogs. So everybody wants to put all their advice on other people as opposed to stand up and say, here are the issues that my dog has and here's how I've worked through it. One of my goals here with this podcast truly is to normalize these behavioral issues that we see in performance dogs because it is normal. Most dogs doing agility have some level of behavioral issue that could use a little bit of help in the same sense that most people have some mental health struggles that would be less of a struggle for them if they would bring it up and talk about it. So the reason that I think people um, are really hesitant to be honest about their dog's issues is because that makes that's because it's vulnerability, right? So if I stand up and say my dog ha- struggles with arousal um, around other dogs that are moving quickly, and hey, that's agility, right? That's me being vulnerable. Um, That is not an easy thing to do. And it's something that we are kind of shaped by our society to not do. And yet it is the best thing for us. And it's the best thing for all of us. So if your dog has some issues, talk to some people about it. as opposed, and the next time you want, you feel yourself wanting to interject on somebody else's dog's issues, look inside yourself and say, you know, what's going on with my dog though that I could be talking about that I'm not talking about? Um, and not talking about it, don't talk about it from a blame standpoint of my, you know, this is just not the dog for me. This is just not a good dog. You know, that's, that's not talking about it. That's placing blame. And... So if you're struggling with something like that, or maybe you are wanting to talk about it, but you're not finding that people are allowing you to, I would encourage everybody to seek out the right people that you can actually talk to and you can be vulnerable with. And I'm just going to leave you with one of my favorite quotes from Brene Brown, which if you guys aren't familiar with Brene Brown you should be. (laughs) So just go ahead and look her up. Um, One of my favorite things she's ever said, which is saying a lot because everything she has ever said is like one of my favorite things, is 
Imperfections are not inadequacies. They are reminders that we are all in this together. So know that. Nobody's dog is perfect. Nobody themselves is perfect. We're all imperfect. And that's a good thing. That's something that we should embrace. So I hope you guys will come back next time and hang out while I talk about my three puppies that I have raised. And go ahead and shoot me an email at cogdogradio at gmail.com if you have any questions or anything puppy specific you want me to talk about. See you next time.